The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Miranda Devine, who is a journalist and author of a very interesting new book, which is currently up there in the top one or two on Amazon. It's called Laptop from Hell. And the subtitle is Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, congratulations on the book. Firstly, I want to congratulate you on the cover. Uh, (laughs) You famously should not judge a book by its cover. But I like how very, very striking and shocking that cover is. It's a picture of Hunter Biden with a cigarette in his mouth looking very seedy indeed. So well done for that. Thank Uh, you. Well, Well, that's all all Hunter, really. Um, It's all Hunter. (laughs) You can't take any credit for that. The Hunter Biden laptop story has sort of fizzled under the surface, as it were, of American politics since it emerged, because, of course, it was famously suppressed. Twitter banned the New York Post story. It suppressed the link. So did Facebook. And it's no exaggeration to say big tech censored it. Why did they censor it? The obvious conspiracy theory, and it's probably true, is that it was not helpful to the Biden campaign, and it was thought to be sort of Trumpist propaganda. But are you surprised that the story is not, I mean, it's good for you in terms of sales of your book, but are you surprised that the story has not been bigger? Is it not more more people are talking about it? Look, I am really, I mean, especially because, you know, I've spent so much time working in Australia and a story like this scandal about one candidate for office, no matter what, what party he was from, would be huge news. And I mean, the story had everything, you know, sex, drugs, overseas, you know, oligarchs in Monte Carlo and Lake Como and Shanghai and Hong Kong. I mean, you look in the laptop and it is like a movie because Hunter Biden and by extension, his entire family, including Joe Biden, live the lives of billionaire oligarchs. And yet Joe Biden claims to be the poorest man in Congress, to be this very humble, you know, boy from Scranton, just surviving on a senator's salary and now a president's salary. But in fact, he lives in a lavish mansion in the most expensive part of Delaware. And he is always, he and his family have always had this magic carpet ride with, you know, things that money can't buy, like entree into Ivy League schools and judge clerkships and, you know, everything that you would want to make your life uh, rich and privileged and elite has been there for the Bidens for the taking. And that's because Joe Biden has always used his influence since his very earliest days four decades ago as a senator for Delaware and a very powerful committee leader of the Foreign Relations Committee and other committees, the Legislative Affairs Committee, which decides who gets to be a judge. I mean, he wielded an enormous amount of power behind the scenes in Washington, and he leveraged that 
through donors and, and people who, who wanted to suck up to him in the corporate world of Delaware, where most companies in America are headquartered because of its um, very opaque business laws and its tax effectiveness. And so he had, you know, corporate titans lining up to fill his pockets and fill his family's pockets. And that went on all this time until he became vice president when he internationalized and really industrialized this Biden family influence peddling scheme and brought it to countries that Barack Obama gave him carriage for, China, Russia, Ukraine. He basically, his family enriched themselves to the tune of tens of millions of dollars thanks to his name and that that alone and the influence that that would wield. And we have seen instances where it does appear that Joe Biden has been compromised. Well, yes, I mean, and firstly, let's say it's not it's not just Hunter Biden, is it? It's Joe's brother, and it's very much the Bidens operating as a clan. Is that that's the that's the yes. sort of the dirtiest yeah. aspect of the story in a way? Um, they're all I mean, grifters. They're all grifters. Know, yeah, yeah, brothers, aunts, uncles, you know, nephews, nieces. They're all grifters. They're all on the teat. You know, they all get grace and favor jobs and you know university placings and you name it. They live a very wealthy lifestyle with no discernible kind of talents apart from their connection to Joe Biden. Some conservatives like to say that Joe Biden is everything he accused Donald Trump of being. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny, I think projection has been the theme for American politics for the last four or five years. And, you know, the race problems that are happening in America now stem from a president who actually is probably the most racist current member of Congress in terms of his past and and his comments. I mean, he he came into the Senate as a 30-year-old, you know, fledgling senator and was immediately taken under the wing of some pretty unsavory Democrats, those sort of Ku Klux Klan Democrats, including the Robert Byrd, who yeah. was yeah, the Dixiecrats. Robert Byrd was a grand cyclops and Joe Biden gave <laughs> the eulogy at his funeral. So, and you know, during the campaign, he was railing against a black talk show host and saying, you ain't black if you don't vote for me. I mean, his entire history is littered with these racist faux pas, I guess you'd call them. And so for him to now turn around and be the sort of leader of the anti so-called white supremacist movement and accusing every Republican, including Donald Trump, of being a so-called white supremacist is pure projection. But that's just the way the Democrats roll at the moment. Let's get back to this this laptop from hell. I mean, the famous email, the most famous email on it, obviously there's all the sort of pornographic hunter stuff that we're not going to get into that on this very tasteful podcast. But I think the key email is um, the 10% for the big guy email, which is uh, an email that suggests that 10% of a very large deal, how many billion was it? Well, look, we don't know. I mean, it never came to fruition, but it would have been several billion. Several billion. 10% was going to be reserved for the big guy. And the big guy seems clearly to be Joe Biden, because he's referenced as so in, in other messages. That sort of blew up as a scandal, but again, was sort of suppressed and kind of censored to a large extent before the election. Did you find other emails that are more damning or as damning? What else have you found in your investigation of what was happening on that laptop? Look, there's there's so much damning material. I think top line, I would say that Joe Biden lied to the American people during the election campaign when he said 
that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. And we have evidence from the laptop that he met with multiple Hunter's uh, business partners from Mexico, from Russia, from China, from Ukraine, from Kazakhstan. He met them in Beijing. He met them in Washington, D.C. He invited them to breakfast at his own vice presidential mansion. He met them for dinner one one night in 2015, April 16. Hunter Biden organized a private room in this Italian restaurant in Georgetown that's frequented by a lot of politicians. And he had his father come and meet his business associates from three countries, from Ukraine, the corrupt energy company Verisma that was paying him $83,333 a month. So Ukraine and also from Russia and from Kazakhstan. And in fact, there was a photograph that popped up on a Kazakhstani anti-corruption website of Joe and Hunter Biden with former Kazakhstani prime minister and another Kazakhstani oligarch standing in that garden room at Cafe Milano. And you can see in the curtains, you can see the, uh, the image of the Cafe Milano logo. And so I'm not sure if it was taken that night. I mean, I assume maybe there was another dinner at Cafe Milano that Hunter organized. But, you know, and there are emails there thanking Hunter for introducing him to his father. And Joe Biden, his campaign just lied about that. We didn't know about the Cafe Milano story before the election, but we had one email from the Ukrainian thanking Hunter for the meeting with his father. And we published that on that bombshell day one that immediately Facebook and Twitter just basically censored us and locked our accounts. But we published that. And the Biden campaign, first of all, sort of mumbled and said, oh, well, you know, there's nothing on his official diary from that date, but maybe he had a, you know, a chance encounter with someone at something. And then, you know, there wasn't much curiosity. Joe Biden went to ground after our story for about three days, never showed his face, and then snarled at a reporter who shouted a question at him across the tarmac. And the story sort of faded because of the censorship. But earlier this year, I found the Cafe Milano dinner and wrote a story about it in the New York Post. And again, the White House refused to answer questions. But the Washington Post decided that they would fact check my story, presumably thinking that it was all Russian disinformation. And the White House actually confirmed that, yes, Joe Biden had gone to a dinner that night, but he was only there for a brief period. And he was there for religious purposes, because there was an, an Orthodox priest who was there, who, who Hunter in an email said was just being invited as the pretext. He was also on the board of this World Food Organization in America, which is only a domestic organization, no interest in overseas fundraising. So there's no reason to invite people from Kazakhstan and Ukraine and Mexico and Russia to this dinner. But he says in an email to a friend, Hunter, when he's organizing this this dinner, that it's a pretext, the food fund. So, you know, I, I mean, it's very damning. There's just so much, you know, for instance, Ukraine this corrupt energy company, Burisma, that was paying Hunter this enormous amount of money, 83000 plus a month. As soon as Joe Biden stopped being vice president, within a few weeks, Hunter's pay was cut in half. So, you know, it's an obvious quid pro quo. And then, you know, we had this saga here of the impeachment of Donald Trump over his, you know, calls to Ukrainian prime minister asking him to look into this very corruption story. And he was impeached for it, which was very clever of the Democrats. But 
the entire premise of the Washington Post and the New York Times and the sort of media protection campaign around Joe Biden over Ukraine is that when Joe Biden told the Ukrainians that they had to fire their chief prosecutor, a man called Viktor Shokin, Joe Biden said that was because the prosecutor was corrupt and he wasn't doing anything about corruption in Ukraine and that he was going to withhold $1 billion in US aid, which Ukraine at that time desperately needed. And so Viktor Shokin was fired. But the truth, as would have been evident to anyone who looked at the contemporaneous media reports at the time in Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe, was that Viktor Shokin, at that time that he was being fired, had an active investigation into Burisma and its owner and had just seized all the property in Kiev belonging to the owner, Lachevsky, Mikolai Slachevsky, his a couple of mansions, some plots of land, and a Rolls-Royce phantom car. So Viktor Shokin, and there's no evidence to suggest that he's particularly corrupt. I mean, he lived quite a modest lifestyle. And he has said in interviews since then with Ukrainian media that he was about to subpoena Hunter Biden and his partner, Devin Archer, who Joe Biden invited into the White House, just as the two boys were, or two men, I mean, they're in their 50s, were about to go onto the Burisma board. He invited Devin Archer into the White House and took a photo of him, a selfie of the two of them, which Burisma immediately put up on their website. And then I have emails showing these frantic emails going between, you know, Hunter Biden's partner and the vice president's counsel, the vice president's lawyer, saying, take that down. But, you know, the damage was done. I mean, that was known, that photograph of Devin Archer was actually known. The Washington Post wrote about that and quite you know, properly disapprovingly, but it just seemed to fade. Everything to do with Joe Biden just never stuck. He has always managed to, you know, get away with this sort of, I don't know, clownish act that he puts on. Well, it's perhaps changed since he's become president, but people always thought he seemed like a good guy, like a a nice guy. And in fact, even the Hunter story, you know, there was a lot of what was caught was actually, you know, quite moving expressions of fondness between father and son. And, you know, this sort of hopeless drug addict son who's desperately getting into trouble all the time and Joe kind of looking out for him and clearly does love his son and so I think do you think that's why people were not willing to look critically at what was actually happening because they had this sense that Joe was a a good guy yes look I'm sure it is and this has been sort of the defining narrative of his life is that he came in to the senate as a young man and I mean, he won the election very narrowly in Delaware at the age of 29 and he at that point had a young wife, two little boys and a baby daughter. And his wife and the baby were killed in a car crash just before Christmas while he was in Washington getting his new office together. And the two little boys, Hunter and his older brother, Bo, just one year older, were in hospital, Bo with a broken leg and Hunter with head injuries. And there's this very famous photograph in America that basically Joe Biden has traded off ever since. It's been in every single campaign he's ever done, a black and white photograph of him getting sworn in at the bedside of his, you know, injured sons, motherless injured sons. I mean, you know, you would have to have no heart if you didn't feel sympathy for a man in in that circumstance. And rather than staying with his motherless children, he took this great opportunity that he had, you know, he made that decision to continue with that career in Washington and left his boys in the care of his aunt, who they very much loved, his sister. And uh, he would commute 
from Washington, but I mean, much is made of that. I'm told that he, he would get home much too late to see the boys. He might go in and kiss them on their sleeping heads. I don't think he was as involved as he might say, certainly from you know the communications that Hunter has with various people and the sort of self-pitying nature of his uh, sort of psychiatrist communications. He very much felt abandoned. And then when he was about seven, Joe Biden remarried to Jill Biden. And so the aunt and the grandmother moved out of the house. And Jill, who was a fairly young woman then, moved in and did her best with these two quite rambunctious boys and Hunter was particularly um, I think a bit of a handful his older brother both seemed to be the golden boy and that mm. also rankled with Hunter and I mean sadly Bo Bo was the apple of Joe's eye and Joe had you know engineered the entire family around Bo and Bo's future presidential prospects and Hunter played you know second fiddle and he was always disgruntled about that although he very much loved his brother and he was expected to be the breadwinner and all his life. I mean, his father got him into Yale on the second shot. He got him grace and favor jobs straight after at wildly inflated salaries. And from that money, he was expected to pay for his brother's tuition, his own tuition and all other bills, you know, to do with the family. And, you know, he's complained about that several times in the laptop. There are emails to family members, his aunt, his daughter. At one point, he said, you know, you're lucky, unlike me, you don't have to give your father half your salary. And mm. um, as time went on, I mean, it went from being sort of highly inflated salaries to lobbying his father's donors tipping millions of dollars into his bank accounts. And then, of course, when Joe became vice president, I mean, the sky was the limit when it came to money. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars flowing in. And Hunter himself said in his memoir that, you know, the Ukrainian money in particular, that regular cash dose, was a real temptation for him. I mean, he'd had addiction problems. He'd been busted, cocaine bust by police that was wiped off his record when he was 18. And he tried to join the Navy Reserve at the ripe old age of 40-something, and he didn't even make his first weekend before he tested positive for cocaine. So he had a problem with substance abuse, but it was really the Burisma money that made him, he says in his memoir, just really go off the rails. So much money, so much unaccountable cash. And I just come back full circle to what you were saying about Joe and you know people being sympathetic to him. It just kept on coming up for me. What kind of a father puts his addicted son in front of torrents of unaccountable cash and puts him in situations of such temptation where he's going to be compromised and plied with drugs and prostitutes and whatever else by oligarchs around the world? And these people do not have America's best interests at heart. So, you know, Joe knew what was going on. He was instrumental in all these deals and was orchestrating it from, well, they, from behind the scenes. The Biden family do seem to be like a 21st century version of the Kennedys, but just without the glamour or, in fact, the public, <laughs> the public interest, really, which is, I mean, obviously there is interest. I'm not saying there is, but considering how sensational you would imagine it might be, it isn't. No, it's funny you say that because Joe Biden has just had this hero worship of the Kennedys all his life because, you know, also Catholic Democrats. A lot of the tragedy within the family and all that. It's and the, same the tragedies. Story. But the difference is the Kennedys were already rich. 
and this is Joe has always aspired to the trappings of wealth and he you know he came from a modest circumstance he lives the life of a billionaire oligarch and and he does that care of you know Hunter is the bag man Hunter is the guy collecting the money and Joe lives in this unbelievable beautiful mansion you know on the shore in Delaware that's probably why he spends so much time there and not enough time in the White House of course but I do want to come back to the laptop one more time this laptop from hell that seems to always draw people back towards it some people say that there's a sort of combination of real material in there and then foreign governments have shoved in other bits are you absolutely confident that that all the files you've seen are legitimately the laptop do you think there are corrupted files going around with sort of a mixture of different things in there and finally do you believe the story that it was found in a repair shop in Delaware Look, the laptop that we have, the hard drive that we have, which is a clone of the laptop from the MacBook repair shop in Delaware, I'm confident that everything on that is legitimate. I mean, we've cross-referenced the material on the laptop with, I have a trove of basically the contents of three phones of Tony Bobulinski, who was one of Hunter Biden's partners. There's a lot of cross-matching of material there. And also Tony Bobulinski was, and other people, Chris Hines and others who were recipients of many of these emails. We've managed to cross-check with them and verify that those emails are legitimate. And then thirdly, right, actually, there are four elements. It's sort of a jigsaw puzzle you have to put together. One of the elements is this another trove of information that another set of journalists got from a guy called Bevan Cooney, who's in jail, who was involved with Hunter Biden and, and Devon Archer on, a, on an Indian reservation scam. Hunter was never implicated in any of that. But Devon Archer was, he was convicted. He's still awaiting sentencing. He got some very favourable treatment from a judge, but he still ended up being convicted. And then then the other two co-conspirators are in jail and feeling very aggrieved. So that's why one of them has just handed over the contents of his cloud to um, a couple of other journalists. And, And one of those journalists kindly let me have a look at that. And then a fourth and very important element of this is the financial records. So two Republican senators, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, during the Trump administration, they did some pretty careful investigations into the Burisma corruption. And through that, they got from the Treasury Department a whole lot of suspicious activity records, which is Mm. financial transactions that banks flag as being somehow suspect. You know, maybe because they come from, you know, a a corrupt oligarch in Russia, like Elena Baturina, who sent $3.5 million to a company associated with Devon Archer or or the Chinese money. I mean, there was tens of millions of dollars were shown in these wire transfers going through to Biden and, and co. And this was what actually alerted Tony Bobulinski, who already knew that with that Chinese deal, that CEFC deal, that he felt that he'd been ripped off because the money that was supposed to be coming in from the Chinese ended up getting diverted through to, well, one of Hunter's business partners. And he saw that and therefore decided to speak out. And, you know, the CFC deal, which was the biggest of the Chinese deals and the one, the 10% for the big guy one, that was the one that Joe Biden was going to have 10%. And Tony Bobulinski has verified that the big guy was Joe Biden. That was the way Hunter and the other partners used to speak of him. There are lots of emails on the laptop describing Joe Biden as the big guy. So I'm satisfied that that's correct. And that CFC deal, it's not just a Chinese energy company. This was the capitalist arm 
of President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, his imperialist takeover of the world, basically, his competition with the United States. And for the last two years of Joe Biden's presidency, Hunter Biden and his partners had been doing work for CFC around the country, doing deals, buying up things, using the Biden name to open doors. And there's a scene in, in the book where Hunter Biden, it's a couple of months after Joe Biden stood down from being vice president, and Hunter Biden's in, in New York, and he's with Tony Bobulinski and a couple of other partners, and he's just pounding the table and yelling at the second in charge, the director, Director Zhang, from CEFC, and he's saying, you owe my family $20 million for all the work we've done the last two years. And so eventually that money does come through in, in dribs and drabs in these wires. So in terms of the laptop, everything that we've published, there's never been any comeback from the White House or the Biden campaign. You haven't had legal threats from, no, from no, the White not House one. or Biden, Biden family lawyers? No. Not one. In fact, they just ignore it. And Hunter Biden himself wrote a memoir called Beautiful Things earlier this year, in which he basically documented his drug exploits. And I mean, that that correlates, some of the dates are a little bit out. When that book came out, he was interviewed about it. And he said, they said, you know, what do you think about the laptop or something? And it was, the question was done quite a softball way. And they said, he said something like, it could be real, it could be Russian disinformation, right? He didn't, he didn't specify. But you can understand why a lot of people did believe that this is Russian disinformation or a foreign government leaking the details of this laptop because it does seem sort of unbelievable that it could have been left, this incredibly sensitive piece of machinery could have been left in a repair shop in Delaware. Yes, except if you see the way Hunter Biden lived his life, it's completely believable. I mean, that was only one of three laptops that I know of that he lost, that he lost phones all the time. I mean, he's constantly going to the Apple shop and buying a new phone. And, you know, there's another laptop that I know he left at the home of his psychiatrist in Massachusetts, Newburyport, Massachusetts, where he was doing some drying out. And the psychiatrist tried to to get him to come back and pick it up or, you know, find some way of getting it to him. And Hunter just never did. And so it was locked in a safe and it was only uncovered when the DEA did a drug raid on a nearby pharmacy and on this psychiatrist who was never charged with anything, but he was caught up in the pharmacy problem. And they seized the, the laptop from the safe. And then there was a third laptop that we know of, and we know of it because on this laptop, there is a video. Hunter had this obsession with filming himself having sex with various women, a lot of prostitutes, Eastern European prostitutes he particularly liked. And he used to take photos of himself in the nude and, you know, loved taking photos of his private parts. But it, so, so, but one of the videos, he's talking with the prostitute, they've just completed their business and he's just chatting to her and he's talking about how he lost another laptop when he was on a bender in Vegas and he woke up and it's this amazing hotel it was on the penthouse floor and there's this lap pool that hangs out over the city with a glass bottom and he wakes up and he's face down and these Russian drug dealers in the room are stealing all his stuff because they think he's dead and he comes to and they've ripped off his computer. And so he's telling the prostitute this and she's saying, oh, well, you know, that was six months ago or something. So you don't have to worry about it because if they were going to do anything with it, they would have by now. And he goes, no, you don't understand. My 
father is running to be president and they know that I've got gazillions of dollars. So they might try and blackmail me. Mm. So he was fully aware of the dangers of his lifestyle. I mean, he would go on these benders at Chateau Marmont for weeks on end in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And I mean, eventually he got blacklisted from the Chateau Marmont, which is saying something because that is a well-known haunt of celebrities. I mean, that's where John Belushi died of his heroin speedball. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it's renowned as being a, you know, a place where you can go and let your hair out. So he, he let his hair out for many weeks. And he even speaks in his uh, memoir, and there's a lot of evidence on the laptop of, um, you know, he called an ant trail of drug dealers and prostitutes and ne'er-do-wells from around Hollywood would traipse through his hotel room and steal all the towels and the ashtrays and order up, you know, expensive champagne on room service and then steal his wallet and, you know, steal his drugs. And he just was living this incredibly dissolute life. And so to me, he was a crackhead, sort of doesn't surprise me that he's leaving things everywhere. Mm. The only thing about leaving the laptop at the MacBook repair shop, now it was waterlogged. He brought in three devices that day they were all waterlogged now I've never been able to get to the bottom of why they were waterlogged but he was having a very volatile relationship with his his late brother's wife his sister-in-law a mm. widowed sister-in-law at that time and they were living in a house with a swimming pool and so I don't know maybe she threw his stuff into the pool I don't know but for whatever reason he had these waterlogged devices that he brought into the MacBook repair shop and the signature on the receipt that he signed matches all the signatures on his driver's license on you know the paternity suit court papers and you know numerous other signatures the phone number that he gave is the same phone number that he was using there was a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence, I guess, pointing to the fact that it was him. Maybe it was some elaborate ruse. The MacBook, John Paul Mac Isaac, you know, I mean, he was just an ordinary guy. He's had to now close his MacBook repair, repair shop, with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which was doing very well. And I mean, he's now living in another state and, you know, basically his life was ruined. Mm. Um, and look, I think that it's quite legitimate. He, Hunter dropped off the laptop in... Um, April 2019. And that was just about three weeks before his father announced his candidacy for president. And I mean, to me, that's a, a bit of a Freudian thing, because, you know, what damage was he going to do his father? And he was at that point, very angry with his family. He was accusing them of not supporting him. He was on a complete drug bender because he had just got millions of dollars from the Chinese when this thing fell apart, when his one of his partners was arrested at JFK and his other partner went missing in Shanghai, believed, you know, drowned in the Yangtze. And he was angry with his family. So dropping off the laptop, you could understand, but not picking it up. He went to California. He probably thought, I can't be bothered. And John Paul MacIsaac said that he tried several times to get him to come back and pick up his laptop. He owed him $85 for the repair bill. And, you know, he had no reason to want to keep it. And then it just sat there for months. It became John Paul MacIsaac's legal property because it had been abandoned. And then in December 2019, he was noticing this stuff about, you know, Ukraine and Burisma. He noticed the name Burisma because he'd had to upload the contents of that laptop onto his own server because it was so damaged. And the other two MacBooks he'd given back to Hunter because he'd managed to fix them fairly quickly or put a new keyboard with them. But this one was very badly damaged. So he um, uploaded it and it took a long time because, I don't know, it just took a long time. And he was just watching 
you know, the porn and and then all these Burisma documents and he, it just stayed in his mind. He noticed on news, he's a Republican, he was a Trump supporter and he thought, well, this could be something. He got a bit scared that he had this material. So he basically rang the FBI and wanted to give them the laptop and they took their sweet time visiting him. They finally did and they took the laptop and gave him a receipt, which we have. But he, of course, had the entire contents on his server. And so when nothing occurred, I mean, when the impeachment was happening and it looked like the FBI was doing nothing, he then contacted various Republican politicians. He tried Jim Jordan, a couple of others I can't remember got no response. And then he saw Rudy Giuliani on Fox News talking about Burisma in Ukraine. And so he thought he'd try him. And he found an address, an email address for Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Bob Costello. And that was the first contact. So he contacted Costello. Costello, to his credit, didn't ignore it, thought there was something there, gave him a call and got him to FedEx the clone, the hard drive of the laptop to his house. He started doing a deep dive and, you know, called Rudy Giuliani in and, and, you know, they're both of them former, you know, DAs from the Southern District of New York, which is like the most formidable, you know, investigative group in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, they were pretty sharp. I mean, they, I've spent, you know, months looking through the laptop and I must say, they got two or three of the most important elements out of it fairly quickly. And so then, I mean, Rudy Giuliani contacted me at the New York Post Steve Bannon, they'd called in, Rudy Giuliani had asked to come in and consult on some of the Chinese stuff. Steve Bannon told, unbeknownst to me, but one of my colleagues at the New York Post, Emma Jo Morris, but Steve Bannon didn't have the laptop. So at the beginning, you know, we weren't quite sure if it was a story or not. The lawyers were looking at it. So it took us a little while to do our due diligence. But in the end, we were comfortable that the material that we had checked out, that there were other recipients, these emails were accurate, were real. And, you know, we gave the Biden campaign ample opportunity to respond and their response was very odd. So um, we published these stories. And then the fact that immediately within a couple of hours of the story going live at 5 a.m. on 14th of October last year, three weeks before the election, Facebook just throttled us and Twitter locked the New York Post's account for the next two weeks, only unlocking it three days before the election. And so, you know, what are they hiding? And the other sort of killer blow for the story was you had these 50 intelligence operatives, including John Brennan, the Obama CIA director, James Clapper, who was, you know, NSA, and Leon Panetta, former defense minister, and Michael Hayden. I mean, all all these people who great authority from their former offices signed this letter that was published in Politico claiming that the laptop was Russian disinformation. It's all the hallmarks of the Russian disinformation. And then buried at the bottom of the letter was this sentence that said, well, we haven't actually looked at the laptop. We don't really know if it is, but it just, you know, in our expert opinion, it looks like it could be. Mm. Um, But it didn't matter. The headline was there. It was Russian disinformation. And that was used as a fig leaf by, you know, other media outlets that were Democrat friendly and hated Donald Trump to ignore our story or traduce our reporting. And then a few days later, Joe Biden appeared at a debate against Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, of course, brought up the laptop from hell and said, you know, they're saying you're a corrupt politician, Joe. What do you say to that? And Joe said, that's not true. And I have this letter from 50 of the most important intelligence community and, you know, people in the entire country. And they say that it's garbage and it's Russian disinformation. And of course, you would do this because 
the whole Russia hoax. Mm. Um, and that really was very successful for Joe Biden. It just killed the story, stone dead. Miranda, we better wrap it up there. But thank you very much. It's a sensational story. And congratulations again on the book. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. Thank you.